to the Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics, and Public Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. For more on events, news, and research, visit us at shorensteincenter.org. Welcome to you all. I'm Alex Jones. I'm director of the Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics, and Public Policy. Uh, it is my great pleasure today to, to welcome uh, Andy Revkin, a uh, colleague from the New York Times and uh, one of the absolute t- top-tier uh, voices on the issue of climate change and global warming, respected widely, uh, controversial from time to time, including at the moment, uh, but someone who has really devoted much of his career to doing frank and serious and thoughtful reporting, not what I would call reactionary reporting, but thoughtful, probing reporting. One of the things that he has said that has prompted controversy recently is basically to, I mean, he said it before, but he said it in the context of a new Showtime series, uh, cautioning the idea, against the idea of making climate disasters the basis for pushing a climate change agenda. Not because it not, it's not necessarily true, but because it's not necessarily true. <laughs> the point is that it's a shaky way to make a policy debate point, and uh, that point of view has prompted um, some pushback from the people who generally have been very much in sync with what Andy thinks about uh, climate change in many respects. The point is that he does not shrink from saying what he thinks. We're very glad to have him here. He is also going to sing at the end of this uh, session. I should have brought my guitar. He has been, for for 20 years, he has... That's true. Run, run out there. I could tweet for one right now. He sang with uh, Pete Seeger and is a as a songwriter. So, uh, anyway, Randy, uh, Randy, Andy, right. we're very glad to have you with us. Andy, Andy. Yeah, no, it's it's good to be here. Um, and uh, it has been a long, strange trip. Uh, this is my thirty-first year as a science writer. Um, I grew up doing a lot of conventional, investigative, "woe is me, shame on you" kind of reporting on aspects of the environment that relate to humans. My first big um, prize-winning article, my first magazine story was uh, won an investigative reporters and editors award in 1983. It was about Paraquat, a weed killer that was killing people um, in weird circumstances, mostly in developing countries. Um, so it had all those elements that we want in a story, which are things like the bad guy, you know, companies that were irresponsibly letting this chemical out on the market and then not keeping track of how it's being used. It had uh, a lot of what was me elements, kids dying, drinking this brown liquid accidentally. Um, and and it had, you know, I dug in and did pretty, I did the kind of reporting that would be a lot easier to do now with the internet, where I had to literally go, go country by country finding a health minister and asking how many pest, pesticide deaths there were, you know, on the telephone. <laughs> so, But it had all that, all the, all the characteristics of what we call a good investigative environmental or science story. But then, and then by the mid-'80s, that was 83, by mid, the mid-'80s, I started writing more and more about global warming. Well, that, well, it started with a human relationship to the climate system, which is not just about global warming. My first big article for Science Digest magazine on, on our relationship with the climate was about nuclear winter, the, the um, sort of the inverse of global warming. If enough cities got ignited in a nuclear war, 
there'd be enough schmutz in the atmosphere to chill the climate. Um, there were a lot of people here in Cambridge. Uh, there was a Halloween, I think it was 83, um, meeting. On, the acronym was TAPS, T-T-A-P-S, which is Art, Paul Ehrlich and others were saying this is going to be the, the end of the world, essentially. Nuclear war wasn't bad enough already, that, but we were going to wreck the climate as well. By 1988, I'd started writing about global warming, about greenhouse gases building in the atmosphere. One thing that happened with nuclear winter is uh, some scientists uh, took a deeper look at it, and it became nuclear autumn. And you just think, where's the headline there? <laughs> you know, Nuclear autumn warned scientists. I think that gives you some sense of um, how complexity can cut against um, urgency when it's, it's just sort of a, the, the way things work. But by 1988, I was um, having become f more familiar with that aspect of climate science particularly, that it's hard, it's a hard problem. And uh, there's many factors in play besides greenhouse gases themselves that can jog the system in ways that are damaging to human affairs. By 1988, I'd written my first big cover story for um, Discover Magazine at that point on, on global warming. And it still had a lot of those woe is me, shame on you elements. It was it still had that characteristic that we, we think of as a news story. Uh, it was hot summer. Jim Hansen did his first uh, discussion on Capitol Hill of uh, the perils of global warming and the evidence that he saw that it was there now. And then, uh, and then it came to the new, well, I wrote my first book on global warming in 1992, essentially the same set of issues we see arrayed now, the same people. That article in 19, the article in 1988 had virtually the same cast of characters as virtually every story you've seen about global warming in the last 10 years as well. Uh, Kerry Emanuel, right down the street here at MIT, I quoted him in that first article on hurricanes in the warming world. Uh, the people on sea level rise are the same. The, the modelers are the same. And uh, public attitudes are about the same. So here we are, you know, fast forward from the early 90s to the early 2000, whatever we are, and essentially the landscape hasn't changed. And you only realize that if you go back through time, kind of like the Retro Report series the New York Times has been doing with this video uh, group, where they re-examine old stories and see what actually played out. You know, often things look more complicated in retrospect. The thing about climate change that I became aware of as a reporter is that is the complexity, both, uh, both on the science end, what's going on in the atmosphere and the oceans is hard. So when someone says, Sandy is us, or as some scientists even during the tornado outbreaks in the Midwest a couple of years ago said there, they, there's a, assuredly a global warming component there when the science actually goes in the other direction on tornadoes. The warmer years we've had, the drier years we've had, have had we've been in a tornado drought, actually. So I, I, you know, I recoil and I have to start, now that I'm writing my, my journalism shifted to the New York Times opinion side in um, 2010. My blog had started on the news side of the paper in 2007, but moved to opinion when I left the staff. Um, I can kind of say what I think. So I've become, and it, it's tiresome. I don't like to be, so, some, what is the term? Some of my critics, there's a word they use. Do you remember it, David? <laughs> For people like us, they're, they're, they're like people, you know, finger pointing, tisk 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 people. You know, that's not right. Um, no one wants to be in that position of sort of saying, well, this coverage is overheated, or this this paper has been overplayed, or uh, the, this part of the IPCC report is not correctly distilled. But often I find myself in that role, and uh, it's. And now I want to just talk to you a little bit about that, this kind of. Um, 
media conversation that happens now that didn't happen 10 or 20 years ago in, in the pre-digital era. You didn't have instant feedback. You didn't have news as a two-way street. You didn't have a, a chorus of readers who could become kind of like a Greek chorus, sort of charting your progress or regress on an issue. And now we are all sort of, we have this kind of like Joe Blitzenflitz cloud that travels with us of people who are there to correct us at any point if we overstep any boundary in any, any particular direction. And, and you can look at that all and say, oh my god, this is just terrible. It's um, hard to separate noise from signal in an atmosphere like that. And, and that's correct. We, the reader, the consumer of news, henceforth, the young, the young person going through elementary school, high school, it, it would behoove anyone from the elementary school kid to the adult reader to develop a skill set for, you have to do some of the work yourself. It used to be Walter Cronkite did the work for you and the CBS editors behind him would say, that's the way it is. And you didn't have to think. You literally didn't have to think. We all had this comfort meal of information that was provided by the new, these big digestive, digestive processes called newspapers and, and, and uh, TV networks. So now now you have this, this much more dynamic, much more, um, it can be noisy at times, but I think in, in many ways what we have now is better than the old model because the old model was not always right. I mean, even the New York Times in the early 2000s, think about the Iraq war buildup. You can see many examples where the old model of journalism telling you the way the world was actually wasn't telling you the way the world was. It was telling you the way a largely white middle-class newsroom felt the world was. Male, male white middle-class newsroom felt the world was. So having uh, this open process comes with, with issues, but it also comes with big opportunities. And what I shifted away from, when I shifted away from the New York Times staff in 2010, I joined the faculty at Pace University, and the title that I wrote from, that I created for myself was Senior Fellow for Environmental Understanding, because I, it was from the mid-2000s on, I was digging in on this research on uh, why we think and feel the way we do, and I realized that is it right, you know, midlife, when you hit your 50s, your mid-50s, you start to think about legacy and, you know, what do you want to do with the rest of your life? And that was a juncture for me where I could have stayed at the New York Times. They, they didn't want me to leave. I took a buyout because it made sense for me. Um, but I could easily have stayed there for another 10, 20 years writing good, solid stories about global warming. And I realized when I read all the stuff that people like David Ropeek over there know, know even better about why we either reject or accept information based on predispositions and how information, having this access to information doesn't make people change. It makes you, it usually reinforces your predispositions. And I looked at that and said, do I want to spend the next 20 years of my life just putting out more stories that people are going to interpret the way they want to based on their predispositions? And I said, no. So I became, at Pace now, I kind of study and through my blog, I write about increasingly um, those issues, perceptual issues, what is it that makes people care about the environment and or um, have a longer term approach to problem solving, to risk management, whether it's earthquakes, which I write a lot about as well, or climate change or um, terrorism once in a while, I write about that too. How do we deal with um, inadequate investment in basic research on things like food and energy, which if you really care about a smooth trajectory in this century, we, we're, we're like so underinvested in those things, but those are long-term things. Again, this gets at the, what is it about us that makes us ne neglect long-term imperatives that are completely rational, logical, but we don't, we, we don't address uh, 
correctly. And you know, none of what I just said the last three or four minutes fits into a news article. So it's much better approached um, in a blog as, as a conversation where I'm drawing on other people's expertise as much as telling you what to think. I'm also a, a really, I'm not, I'm not, I'm a shitty columnist. Columnists, people like, columnists are like, most people go to a columnist to reinforce predispositions, you know, and maybe you'll read the, opposi the opposition. You know, once in a while you'll read George Will just to, to refuel your, your animus. <laughs> uh, but mostly uh, they're there to sort of distill and they're there to be like a, an even friendlier Walter Cronkite. They're there to sort of give you a view of the world that you know fits with your view of the world. And I'm like there, I mean, I wrote a piece, someone asked me, how can you be passionate about the environment and not... And, and be objective as a journalist. This was when I was still a news reporter. And I said, yeah, well, I'm passionate about reality. I care about reality. I care about what we actually know and don't know and, and what you do with that mix of information. So, uh, so that's my form of activism in this kind of environment. But it makes me, again, not a great spokesman for a particular agenda because most agendas in, our, in America particularly are driven from some edge position. No fracking, no nukes, uh, you know, no keystone. And, and realities are always more complicated. So why don't I, I'll, let me just pause for a minute and see if there's some questions, because I could easily talk too long. Well, if, if you're going to open it to questions, I want to ask the first one. Sure. That's my prerogative. Yeah, just, yeah. And I want to yeah. know what my sense is that people are stupider about the, the environment now than they were 20 years ago, that they, that they, they have her. been confused by information and no. people that thought things now think something else, or at least some of them do. I, when, my, when I was writing my first book about global warming, it was for the American Museum of Natural History, uh, which was creating the first exhibit on global warming back in 1991. came out in 1992. They did these surveys of museum goers, and, and the majority of people going through the museum thought that climate change was happening because uh, the ozone layer was being depleted, letting more sunlight in to warm the world. Now, there are these complexities about chlorofluorocarbons <laughs> There is a relationship between ozone and climate, but it's they completely missed that it's about greenhouse gases. So the level of understanding at that time, and I don't see, I don't think it's worse now. I think it's kind of the same. People are mostly disengaged. You look at, I could show you some graphs. Actually, I'll switch to it. I am going to open a PowerPoint just to show you a couple things that are relevant. People are not dumb, um, but they, uh, let me just show you show you two things quickly. So there's a great ongoing survey done at Yale, the Six Americas study, where they kind of look at American attitudes on global warming and related things. And they've identified six kinds of Americans. They're, they range from alarmed to dismissive. And you know, I'm sure you know one of every one, <laughs> every one of these bubbles. And so in 2009, in the run-up to the big cap-and-trade bill, they, uh, it turned out that most Americans even the alarmed, even those who are really alarmed about global warming, you know, kind of the Al Gore acolytes were like meh on whether a cap-and-trade bill was the thing to solve the problem, which says a lot of things. It says maybe they never explained what cap-and-trade was. Uh, it said many things. So, so you're looking at this and you're saying, if even the alarmed on global warming are meh on this bill, how did they expect that this, why was it surprising that the bill failed? You put that against our, our, our Senate issues. Now, same, so same groupings, different question. Support for providing rebates for purchases of solar panels and fuel-efficient vehicles. Virtually everybody is either like maybe or yes. Even the dismissives on global warming are saying maybe we need uh, 
incentives for renewables. And, and that's kind of interesting. Now, when I show this to economists, any economists in the room? Oh, that's interesting. Anyway, economists say, well, that's because you're giving away something. It's a freebie. So who's going to say no to a freebie? But then look at, the, look at this last slide. This was the thing that really got my attention. Support for requiring that mandate, mandate, 45 mile per gallon fuel efficiency across vehicle fleets, even with a $1,000 price premium. So this is saying it's something that's going to cost more and we're going to force it on you. And even then, only the dismissives were like, uh, I'm not so sure. So there's something, this says to me so much about the whole global warming debate. You could, you could debate the science of global warming from now until eternity, and it will not change people. But if you talk about energy wisdom, things that make sense, you can have really interesting outcomes. And, and that, that was very powerful for me. And it gets hidden in, in a lot of the analyses that these surveys are looking, at, looking for the wrong thing. Everyone's always looking, oh, people care a little more about global warming this year, therefore now we can act. And that's such, I'm going to show you one more, one more slide to make the point that I made here a few years ago. This is Gallup data. What? Come on, wake up. No, why don't we just sleep again? Oh, maybe, it, hold on for a second. Come back. Anyway, um, if you look at Gallup data on people who worry a great deal or a fair amount about global warming, I think maybe it just kind of, it'll, 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 It's, it, anyway, essentially it hasn't changed. Uh, there we go. There we go. Okay, let me just go back to the right slide here. It's coming. All right, 1989 to 2013, and basically 2014 just came out, and it's the same. So this is people who worry a great deal or a fair amount. So this is a, you know, it's more than half of us when asked worry a great deal or say we worry a great deal or a fair amount about global warming, but it has not budged over time at all, not, not even remotely. And if you, the other, the most important survey question by far is when they ask randomly, what worries you? Question mark. And they, and they just, there's just silence. You have to fill in the blank. And, and climate change is, has never, ever been on that list, not even in the top 20. Can you tell us why it went up in, seven, in 2001? Is it? To 72%? Uh, well, the... Uh, Al Gore. No, that's 1999. What happened in 19? Oh, Kyoto. The, yeah, that was a, there was a lot of news about the Kyoto Protocol at that time. That was when, actually, the Kyoto Protocol fell apart. The United States and Europe couldn't agree. But I don't think, I'm not sure what else was going on there. Weather. Yeah, basically, the 90s was all uh, smooth sailing. Uh, energy prices were low. Oil prices were really low through the 90s. And these, all these issues were kind of... Oh, and Pinatubo, Mount Pinatubo, oh. in 1992, cooled the climate for a while. Mm -hmm. So um, all that talk went away. So anyway, I'm sorry, that was a very long answer. No, for, no, I, that, so if you want people to be concerned about this in a responsible, effective way, if you want to persuade them, what do you do? Ah, well, this gets at a question that David Ropika and I were just talking about earlier. And, and David would say, I think you don't worry about that so much that the people who need to be motivated now are uh, energy innovators, um, people who know how to grow, who want, I, I think there's, let me rephrase myself. A lot of the urgency, the sense of urgency has come from our failure to hit certain targets or, you know, I've been writing about this long enough to have seen these targets come and go and right now the, the, you see here these numbers, 350 is the big one, 
thanks to my, my friend Bill. Um, uh, 80 by 2050, so how many states have pledges that we're going to cut emissions of greenhouse gases 80% by 2050? Two degrees, thou shalt not pass two degrees. None of those thresholds have any meaning in the sense that we don't know how to do that. We don't know that. In a world heading toward 9 billion people that right now today has 2 billion people who have no access to reasonable energy choices. Today, who can't turn on a light. 600 million people in India were unaffected by the big blackout because they're not on the grid anyway. They're, they're sitting in the dark anyway. You know, it's, so they need energy more than they need to worry about global warming. And they're going to get energy by whatever means is cheap now. It, the social cost of carbon arguments don't have any salience in places like that. When, when the social cost of not having electricity is so much more powerful. Well, these tipping points that we read about in various, you know, scenarios, are they meaningful? They're putative. Tipping points. I did a long piece in the printed paper a few years back on this. Um, most of them are like possible, not even probable. They're, we think they're out there because in the paleo record of climate, there's been big jogs in the climate system. But no one can identify when or where. The, the methane bomb in the Arctic is implausible. This idea that the Arctic is going to belch a giant uh, climate-threatening pulse of methane, there's, there's not science to support that in the near term at all. Uh, the destabilization of ocean currents in the Atlantic Ocean is less probable, the IPCC said, than they thought 10 years ago. And what about Boston being covered in water? Oh, sea level rise, well, there, you know, again, look, you should look at the story I wrote in 1988. I posted it online. Uh, it's, if you want to find it, just it's j.mp, j.mp slash rev1988. And it's the uh, this 8,000-word story, and all the same questions about sea level were there, they're there now. It could be a couple feet by 2100, it could be a, a meter, or maybe maybe a meter or two, but that, that is in the era, that's in the realm of, it's not even, you can't identify the, the thickness of that tail of probability, because we don't understand ice sheets, and we don't understand them any better than we did 20 years ago. Are you saying that the permafrost not going to melt and that we're not going to Oh, it already, it is. The permafrost is thawing. But you're just saying it's not going to be catastrophic? Is that what Correct. You're At least, in, you, well, I can't tell you that, I can't say no, but I can't see, I can't say I've seen an argument for yes that has any more plausibility than maybe. And, you know, when societies, again, are considering these imperatives for energy, access against an argument like that that's such a murky if, it doesn't really have any policy salience. Yeah. Uh, and then, and then you. The, the advertising for this talk set, promised that you would give us some idea of tools and a tool Yeah, kit. yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Well, let me go back. You know what? Let me, I'll think. Okay, tools. Uh, yes, that's a good idea. I did. I was going to present some actual slides. There are some great tools. <laughs> I think one here. I'll go right here because this this picture illustrates the depressing aspect of what we've been talking about. I took this picture at the end of the 2009 climate talks. There was a reporter, a TV journalist, who was just like, <laughs> and anyone who's been involved in this stuff for even a few years feels like this. But then, then you see things like this. This is Scott DeLisi. He's a US ambassador to Uganda. And his main uh, interface with the people of Uganda now is, is Facebook. So think about the role of an American ambassador 10 years ago, which was to go to cocktail parties, to meet other people in gray suits, and, and maybe go on some safari. 
but he's he's and he's on Twitter. He's just as active on Twitter. He represents a shift in how we relate to communities um, globally, asynchronously, or synchronously through live Google Hangout, or through uh, you know being an active uh, voice on Facebook. It's a great thing to see. Um, Inside Climate News won the Pulitzer Prize for its climate coverage last year. This is a privately, you know, foundation-supported journalism enterprise that that won that won the Pulitzer Prize for its coverage of oil pipeline problems in um, in the um, in the Midwest. That says there's new models that can work. Now, whether they can sustain their funding, it's the same question we all face, even in conventional journalism world. How do we sustain funding? Scientists are breaking out of their role. They, they, you know, I, I like being a science writer, but, but there's a lot of scientists who are communicating very effectively directly to the public now without the interface of a journalist. And the more of that, the better. Journalism is a shrinking wedge, I've said this a thousand times, a shrinking wedge of a growing pie of ways to tell stories and communicate, to share and shape ideas. So if you're just stuck in that wedge, you're, you're still important, especially for investigative enterprise work, but it's a small part of the overall conversation. So when I, when I see scientists, like, this was a case, classic case in 2009, this climate scientist was going to Siberia. He asked me if I wanted to come with him on this really cool project. I couldn't go, thousands of dollars, too many bugs. Yeah, I, I go to the Arctic when it's cold. I don't like to go there when it's buggy. Um, and by then I said, well, you, you're going, you've got cameras, record some audio from your students, send me stuff. And, and I, I curated a piece for Dot Earth. It wasn't conventional journalism. It, I wasn't in the field, but it was, um, and it wasn't a press release either. It was a, a curated description of science in the field. And that became a regular feature at the Times for a while called Scientist at Work. It evolved into a separate blog, which now is, I don't think, is not running anymore. And then, and then there are scientists like Richard Alley at Penn State. He was involved with this very, very, uh, very good um, TV, excuse me, TV series. Um, Earth, the operator's manual on PBS. He's uh, he does he sings too, he dances. He gives he does this Milankovitch dance. He illustrates the ice age cycle by kind of davening, and his bald spot is the North Pole. And I mean, but now the, of course the proviso there is he has he has um, uh, tenure, so he can do a, he can be crazy. <laughs> Not everybody should do these things. And I mentioned the nerd loop. Randy Olson, a very a friend of mine, who's a science communicator and a sort of storytelling um, coach says we have to get out of the nerd loop which is people talking to each other about how to communicate about tough science issues instead of actually trying to communicate science issues. I, the Twitter is your friend. Uh, it feels overwhelming sometimes. I love Twitter. This, the, this thing is just as much of an innovation as the photovoltaic panel to me. The hashtag and it was an invention. Chris Messina, this guy who was at Mozilla, the company that created Firefox, way, back, way, way back in 2007, in the early days of Twitter, he tweeted one day, hey, why don't we use pound sign and a word to create a conversation in, in cyberspace? And from then, then, then it exploded. It's just, this is a way to identify a conversation or an issue. And it's a way to cut through all this crap. You know, the Bieber, Bieber, Kardashian, Kardashian, whatever. You can cut through all that with a, with, a, with a brand, with a little device, a tool uh, like Twitter. And, Na and NASA is a, a leader in this. Um, um, Asteroid Watch is, a, look at their Twitter feed called Asteroid Watch. It went from like 20,000 followers to over a million. Um, the, uh, this is about the uh, reality that there's gonna be an asteroid that's not gonna be a close call like out over Russia a year ago. 
there's going to be one that's going to come on a trajectory we know will strike the, the world and be a big problem, bigger than global warming, most likely. But there's a lot of miscommunication about it as well. So by, being, by diving into Twitter, creating a space there and a place for people to go when there's some news about a new asteroid, NASA has taken hold of that conversation and said, come hither. It, it, and it gives people a way to cut through the, the, the crap. And, and you can develop a sense of authority even in those landscapes, just like the New York Times spent 150 years doing as a newspaper. And there are scientists there. These guys, they're all great. Catherine Hayhoe, Richard Betts, Gavin Schmidt, <coughs> Diffenbaugh at Stanford. They're all engaged in different ways in these new media. And, and they're providing that same service that NASA did on, on um, asteroids. So anyway, that's a quick, there's much more I could tell you about the promise in these media that seems so overwhelming sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Um, we are communication students, and there's an old adage by um, Marshall McLuhan, I don't know if you've heard of him, but mm -hmm. he says, the medium is the message. Would you agree that this applies to your research? The, is the medium the message? I, uh, no, no, because the, the message, I, I think what I like to do is, depending on the story or the question, there's a different tool for the job. Like YouTube, a video is great for certain things. Twitter is a great way to engage people in a conversation across space and time. You know, a hashtag, there's some examples of hashtags. Every week, actually you guys should check this out. Uh, pound sign WJ chat, so pound sign WJCHAT. Every Wednesday evening, there's a live conversation around that by web journalists. It's, it's, the, it's basically the frontier of online communication, web journalism. And that, you know, the medium is the message doesn't have any meaning to me in the sense that, that, that I'm just, I'm a fan of whatever medium is right for the message. And I'll give you one example. Whoops, I'm just going to go here. So, like, I, I could tell you the volume of the atmosphere. You know, the atmosphere has a volume. It's actually not a hard number to figure out if, if you're smart. You know, I, I'm not going to actually figure it out, but I can find it. And it's some, some number of million cubic kilometers. But then Adam Neiman, this illustrator in England, science illustrator, used this way to show the volume of the atmosphere a few years ago. And I think it says so much more than a number. I mean, and, and actually, he's done others. I don't have them in this particular presentation on, on the volume of the world's uh, liquid water, which is sort of, if you put it over America, it's kind of like from Chicago, a ball that sits from Chicago toward uh, Boston. And then, but if you ask how much of that is fresh water, that ball is so small you can hardly see it. So it's a way to sort of have a new conversation about water to, when using a different way of looking at the question. That, so that, that's how I would answer that. It, 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 it redirect or misdirect, <laughs> misdirection. Yeah. Uh, to talk about catastrophe, you can't depend upon apocalypse. I saw Justin Phillips speak at the Ninth Foundation Fellows in Nineteen, a few months before uh, the New York Times eliminated the environmentalists, and he was talking. Yeah. And I did a project for a business book at the Times 
talking to science fiction writers about positive visions of the future. <coughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. And I also am involved with people who are doing a lot of work around soil carbon and sequestration. I would say rehabilitation management. That's not even part of the discussion here at MIT or Harvard in relationship to climate change. Nor is ecological design such as the other stuff. So why is it that you find it so difficult to get out of scaring ourselves with a zombie apocalypse or any other apocalypse yeah. coming out of pipe, rather than thinking about the solutions that are available You're, that are fairly cheap and easy, like eliminating black carbon and raising the standard of living for those bottom building billion, the example of the green Shakti in Bangladesh, which is on track to be five yeah. million. Well, you made, two, you made two really important points. Kim Stanley Robinson, this that's one of the people that I talked to. But he's done this. He's done these epic. He does. What does he call them? Uh, space soap operas or something. He's tried to do the these Mars, positive the pieces. He's one of the only people who's done kind of non-apocalyptic science fiction. And it's a harder sell. You know, this gets at the whole issue of journalism too. You know, we always focus on the the downside. It's we did a series in 2005 and 2006 at the Times called the Energy Challenge that was all about solutions, everything you can imagine from. You know how to get more efficiency to um, revolutionary designs and uh, solar panels to blah blah blah. It was thousands of words, but it was mostly not on the front page because there's no what was me element to it, and we have a problem with that. And that's one reason, by the way, I, sh I left journalism <coughs> at Pace. I'm trying to work with my students. We do these films each spring. We travel somewhere and do a film about a sustainable resource management question. The first one we did was on shrimp farming in Belize, and it was on a woman who had spent 20 years working on a low-impact model for shrimp farming, where you don't let the water flow out into the mangroves and you, you ruin the reef, and, and you reuse the water, and you don't use antibiotics, and you build this beautiful broth of weird stuff that the shrimp eat. And uh, so we're trying to fill that gap. But of course, you know, it's gotten thousands of views, but it's not, it's not on the nightly news, because and there are, there are important stories to tell about the terrible side of shrimp farming. And there was actually that same year, another student group at University of British Columbia did a really good film package on, a video package on shrimp farming in uh, Southeast Asia and all the problems. So you gotta do both. And how do we shift um, our norms, whether it's in the media? Is it our job? Is it the media's job, actually, to, to uh, you know, how much of us, what we do is about education, about public service versus telling the news is an ongoing debate in newsrooms anyway. So that's a really great question. Your other, oh God, I know you had, uh, I guess that's kind of, did I answer your prime point? There was something else you were getting at that I. For me, it seems like a, a failure of imagination. It's easier, easier for us to imagine failure than it is to imagine success. Yeah, I mean, these are, David Ropik, do you have any ideas about this, David? Yeah, the human psychology of risk perception says we pay more attention to what could kill us than what could save us. How much of this is our lizard brain? Well, this is, this, is, this is inherent human psychology with yeah. risk. So the media reflect what's going to draw our attention and magnify but don't create the risk. I was a reporter for 22 years. And uh, people who want to move the public dial, Alex, yeah. uh, uh, inherently, subconsciously are attracted to the more attention-getting aspect, which is you could die. Right. So it, it, it's, it's tapping an inherent 
psychology. The other one is the solutions, that's intellect. The other one is animal, I want to get there tomorrow. Yeah, I, I bike here from Central Square, and I have I have breaking news announcement. The first cherry blossoms are out. <laughs> <laughs> it's about time. That's, that's really welcome news, actually. The headline tomorrow will be, Man dies driving bike into first cherry blossom. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But uh, by the way, that gets at, you know, one of the other realities, there's been some recent scholarship showing that poll results, what people say on polls about global warming is largely a function of the weather outside. Uh, or there's, a, there's a demonstrable statistically significant shift based on weather. So. Chris, and then, and then over here. Um, recently, a few weeks ago, the UN climate impacts report came out, it did actually get more attention than some people think in a global sense uh, with a report that was in, in essence kind of doing what you do, connecting the dots um, about, you know, you emphasize 9 billion people. And this was saying, well, climate change is not out there. It is something that is involved in, you know, poverty, hunger, uh, conflict, the big, big problems facing the world. So uh, it actually attracted a lot of attention by giving a message that is, um, it, it wasn't uh, separating the climate uh, message, but kind of connecting it to what people think about. So what was your impression of that report? Um, and again, it, it had the necessary frightening aspects because actually some of these things are happening and are frightening. Yeah, well, it was, it, was, it was good. It was it was an accurate portrayal of the science for the most part, as far as I can tell. I dug in pretty deeply. Um, but is it going to change things? Again, the, the thing that it did spell out that the last one in 2007 didn't spell out so well is that there are many factors in play at the same time. That human vulnerability to the impacts of of bad climate outcomes like floods, droughts, hurricanes, tornadoes, you name it. The vulnerability of humans to those things is much more a function of changing patterns of development and where we live and how we live than it is to changes in the climate. And this report did it, like the, the extremes report from the, the IPCC a couple of years earlier, it did a good job of laying that out along with what we know about most of what it said about the perception, you know, it says there's there's a measurable impact of climate change on all continents now. Absolutely. But how policy rele relevant is that change? And then projections? It's the projections that matter most. You know, what's, everything that's happening right now is totally manageable and still mostly a function of human exposure to hazard. The, the typhoon Haiyan in the Philippines, I did a piece, um, I'm just kind of rebooting here so I can't show you readily right now. But the, the, the city that was so badly affected had a tripled population in the last 40 years. And as Seth Borenstein effectively reported in, for the AP, um, most of the people there who had moved in were poor and living in shabby coast, you know, on floodplains, because where do poor people live? They live where no one else wants to live, the places like floodplains. So there were sitting ducks, and the, but the exposure to hazard, the scope of that loss was a function of human change, not climate change. And this report does reflect that. So that makes it... It's not like it says, okay, here's the latest report in climate science, therefore it's more urgent than ever to decarbonize our energy system. That, that, that's not the job, that wasn't the job of this report. This, the other one that's coming out this coming week is about what do you do about it. And 
part of the problem with this IPCC process is it's so unwieldy. They, they wheel it out of month after month. People become desensitized to it. And by the time you get to the report on what you do about it, everyone's kind of, uh, didn't we already write that? <laughs> you know? So it's really hard. I don't expect, I don't expect the IPCC process. It's, it's invaluable. It's provided a barometer over time of change and what we know and don't know, options, that kind of thing. But it's not, it's not, it's not going to shape policy. It's the other way around. Policy, one of the most valuable people I've listened to over the years is Jesse Osabel at Rockefeller University, who's kind of a scholar focused on global change, energy, food. And he said years ago that most, most politics is, is people pulling on disconnected levers. Now, that's not always true. You can think about counterexamples like getting lead out of gasoline. But he was saying that in most cases, we do stuff because it's already affordable, because someone already did the heavy, the, the, because it's doable, not because, because the politics doesn't shape what happens. It, it sort of reflects what's possible. And that's, that's why the IPCC report, I think, has, has limits. I don't think we're going to have science-based policy anytime soon in that sense on climate change. Oh, yeah, sorry. And then, I'm sorry, you, you have as a long-term student of the climate wars, um, I see there's a new generation present. But one, uh, if you have been around for more than two decades, there's a great sense of deja vu in the sense that many of the reactors, both corporate and, and, and education, who were party to the, the first round um, have engendered the second generation. And 20 or 30 years ago, we saw the, the, the collision of science and advertising in the early days of environmental. Since then, the collision of political science and public relations has come to the point where the permanent campaign is now a national institution. And I think to some degree the IPCC process reflects this in the sense that the, the uh, executive summaries have become much more uh, uh, important in the scientific progress. And to that degree, uh, I wonder if Andy has any reflections on uh, the, uh, the, the, the continuing crisis, if you will, uh, in the disconnect, the positive disconnect, between short and clinchy executive summaries and deep and, and, and complexly digestible. Yeah. Well, I, I wrote uh, the IPCC took a lot of heat a couple of years ago for after the 2007 report for they there were a few mistakes. That wasn't the main issue. There were bigger structural issues with how they write their reports that were seriously examined by the government of the Netherlands and there were these the inter interacademy council. And one of the things they they demanded was a clearer uh, explanation by the IPCC of how it writes its summaries. And one of the things that's not well known about the IPCC is when it was chartered in 1988, which was the year I started writing about this stuff, they, um, the governments of the world that created it wanted it to be torqued toward bad outcomes. It's written into its charter that it, it, should, it should focus attention on the things that matter to society, which are mostly on the downside. So, so if they had done a better job of in, in articulating that, I think they would have been less prone to... to um, charges of being intentionally torquing things toward the, the more dire. They were actually told to do that, and it's not really well understood. Um, I think, And there have been many examples. The 2007 report's language on extinction of species, 
was woeful. It, it actually says for 30% 30, 30 of the world's species, there's a raised likelihood of extinction, but it never quantified that. Raised 1%, 5%? And and when you but the the, the the sort of boilerplate I mean the uh, distilled message was you know we're going to have thirty percent of our species on the planet extinguished by global warming, and it, it that's that's the kind of stuff that really bugged me in the past, where, it, where it's just not not accurate. Um, you had, you've been waiting a long time. Uh, so I'm a graduate student at MIT Center for Civil Media, so I'm really interested in how we can use communication tools and open data to better understand the environment make better decisions. And I'm curious about your thoughts on various initiatives to open up data, like the one that Obama launched last month, I think it's called the <coughs> Climate Data Initiative, and whether this additional information will help us to better understand and make decisions, or if it just adds to the big pile of content that's out there. I think it kind of adds to, yeah. because the uh, the forces of stasis, the stasists, as I call them, can dig in on that data and promulgate contrary conclusions um, pretty regularly or find little questions about quality that will then raise questions in the media sphere that matters to them which is uh, a different you know the Rush Limbaugh sphere so I, I'm not sure it will change things I'm all for transparency I, I think on a global scale on things excuse me on things that matter transparency is an incredibly powerful tool like when the United States Embassy in, in Beijing started doing their own Twitter of uh, Beijing's air quality before China was releasing data on air quality, I mean that—that's—that's power. That's—that's—that's—it's like you know, Radio Free Europe used to be. Um, it's a way, and and aerial reconnaissance, um, you know, deforestation, maintaining the capacity to use satellites and other means to understand global change. Um, you can understand if Indonesia is allowing rampant deforestation in parks, which is one of the nice, the Showtime series that I credited their first episode. You know, they looked at that, and um, you know, the world can take can keep track of Indonesia's deforestation patterns now without the permission of Indonesia. That stuff's great. So, on that level, transparency is fabulous. And one last thing, and then and then you get this. We have this wonderful potential now. And I, I credit you know sometimes I chide Greenpeace for doing things I think are stupid, like when they a Greenpeace unit in Australia destroyed a GMO experiment in the field, but. When they did a great thing when um, I got it here somewhere on palm oil and, and pulp and paper in, in Indonesia. That's right. They um, they've done the on the ground truthing uh, to show when companies in Indonesia were doing bad stuff related to forest uh, when they were deforesting, you know, vulnerable areas, uh, orangutan, orangutan habitat and stuff. So the, there's a greenwashing doesn't work as well anymore. You can kind of do the you can you can actually show demonstrate, and then what what they did then was this great uh, campaign, where uh, where is it? I thought I had it here, where they um, they created a very clever campaign to go to the other end of the chain. Who's using the palm oil? Well, it's when I buy a Kit Kat bar, uh, I'm I'm contributing to the deforestation of Borneo, and they they did this viral campaign with pressuring Nestle and these other companies. So all that's so much more doable now. The ground truthing, um, getting around greenwash, uh, going directly to consumers to shift attitudes on things that matter is so doable. And, and none of that involved the media. I mean, it, you know, the media covers their things, but the thing that made the difference for, for Nestle was the pressure on, on the 
you know, like young people uh, saying, oh my God, I'm, I'm eating an orangutan, essentially by eating this candy bar. Um, it's really cool what's happening. Uh, I don't know how to pick. Um, you, you, the woman by the wall, you were waiting a while. There seems to have been a real jump in climate change coverage just in the last six months. I mean, there was almost no coverage whatsoever of the um, climate talks in Warsaw in November. It was really surprising how little coverage there was. But the New York Times, at least, has really, in addition to your blog, has really ramped up. And it seems to be more than the IPCC reports. And what's been most interesting is that there's been much more of an emphasis on equity issues that I've seen in coverage before. And I wonder if, I, if that's just my perception. Um, um, you mean equity like uh, poor countries being more vulnerable? Equity like the Bangladesh uh, uh, article talking about how they're going to be I don't think there's more necessarily. Uh, you know, those those were the iconic aspects of this issue in the 80s, and when I was writing in the, we did a series in 2007 in the Times called the Climate Divide, which was about the outsized vulnerability of poor countries to climate change and how rich countries essentially have the capacity to invest in things that limit your exposure. So it's, uh, I, that seemed to have kind of disappeared. Well, it's all, you know, this gets back to what I was saying about public attitudes, too. Media coverage is kind of like water sloshing in a shallow pan as well. It's just, it kind of comes and goes. Um, I haven't seen, I don't think it's going to be the thing that drives the public to change behavior, you know, or to change um, how we think about what kind of a price we're willing to pay for oil or gas or, or coal. Um, I've just been at it long enough. You know, and I don't think that means it's not worth doing the coverage. I think it's vital. I think what Justin's been doing and, you know, carrying on where I left off and uh, what many other people are doing is, is great. And I think Showtime is, you know, they're doing their best. I, I worry that they'll end up overstating some things going forward. The next this, the episodes on Sandy and on um, uh, natural gas that, well, I'll see. You know, I have an open mind. I, I've given some of the people involved with it, it's very agenda-driven, but they've been sort of very careful so far. Now, how many people watch it is a whole other question. Um, there, and then, uh, could you do the picking from here? I don't want to be... Uh, yeah. Yeah, I, well, I, I think that gets back to what I was saying earlier about if the conversation is about energy, smart energy choices, and or if the conversation is about reducing vulnerability to climate hazards, you can build a lot of consensus that won't be there on global warming. I'll give you one quick example. 
uh, flood insurance for people living in areas that are vulnerable, that are fu fundamentally not sustainable. Two years ago, Congress did the right thing, the, the Biggers Waters Act, whatever. Um, and a lot of libertarians who want limited regulation, limited government spending, hate subsidized flood insurance. A lot of my friends who are really worried about sea level rise hate the idea that we're subsidizing having people still living in harm's way. So, but if you build a conversation around global warming um, on um, the need to have a regulatory, you know, sort of high price on carbon, blah, 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 all those libertarians are gonna go away. So why not at least engage on the issues like energy efficiency and and um, not at least not subsidizing stupidity, um, but of course what we've done it hasn't helped because we've they just uh, repealed most of the, the aspects of that bill because it, people lo and behold realized it was actually going to cost cost a lot of money to live in harm's way instead of when the government's not paying the bill, so it's challenging. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, about journalists who are instead of using words, which is we just had that last question very politicised, um, um, or, or just reporting the numbers, uh, using direct data visualisations, like journalists who have skills in graphics yeah. um, and are able to to um, like like the Guardian data blog or the blogging interactives they have. How important do you think those visualisations are, and the journalists who are able to do them? Well, I love visualisations, and, and and they spill out from just journalism. There, there's some of the best are being done outside of journalism. Um, but, you know, how much it matters is another question. In fact, <laughs> again, David Ropik and I, earlier this morning, we were talking about um, Ezra Klein, who's like one of the masters of this through his, his blog, the Wonk blog, at, D at uh, the post that now has moved. He's got his own website, Vox. And he just did a piece on, on his blog that says information doesn't matter. And even as he's pouring out more effective visualizations of information. Now, I, I think that a, st a great starting point has to be using visualizations from very early, you know, in education particularly, you can make a big difference by how you explain things. Um, I, I just want to show you one slide. This is not, it was done by a TV station in, in uh, Scandinavia. Oh, it's not in this, uh, never mind. There's a video about trend versus variation. That's great. Uh, it's a guy walking a dog, and the dog is all over the place, and the man is walking in a certain direction. And if you keep track of the dog, you're not getting the point. Uh, and, and so there's huge potential to do that. Will it change the world on its own? No. Will it change the world as part of a big landscape of things that are happening? Yes-ish. John. Sure. Uh, and I like your piece, and I saw Joe Ron's response and whatnot, but I was just wondering, like, you know, this is a big deal in terms of climate communications. There's no doubt it's a, it's a very ambitious effort and whatnot. And for the times that sort of, uh, basically, their first thumbprint on this thing seems to have been the Nordhaus Schellenberger op-ed, am I right? There's no review, there's no... Yeah, I don't, uh, I'm not sure if we did a piece that, about it coming Walk out. Walk us into that editorial board meeting. <laughs> why, did they, why did they leave with that? I mean, and I respect Nordhaus and Schellenberg, and I, and I understand where they're coming from, and some of the climate communications research definitely calls into question some of the techniques, but we haven't even seen it yet. I know. It's, you know, it just seems a little unfortunate. I, you know, I... It's a lot of heat for... My blog is edited by the op-ed desk, so I, I, I deal with them all the time. Yeah. I, I see them making decisions on various facets of various issues that I think are like, that make me go, why are we doing that now? Um, 
I don't really, I'm, the process is uh, clearly, you know, one thing clearly is journalism is, it, we migrate to controversy. We love dispute. Um, there's a feature at the Times called Room for Debate. I keep proposing we need a, to develop one called Room for Agreement. <laughs> and in fact, I try to use my blog for, I've written this on .earth several times. But I, you know, I haven't seen any kind of like big momentum toward that. In other words, I would love to get people into a room who, or, or virtually or otherwise, who disagree powerfully on lots of things, but to find where they have overlap. And but we don't do enough of that. We don't do enough of that. And I would, I think, having a pair of op-eds. I'll give you. A quick, I just wrote the other day about Steve Cohen, the head of the Earth Institute at Columbia University. He has a completely divergent view of global sustainability uh, trends and outcomes and policy than Jeff Sachs, the head of the Earth Institute. I would love to get them both in the same room at the same time and hash that out. It's fascinating, but we don't do enough of that stuff. Uh, actually, a conversation. Conversation, a conversational approach, and this is why I like blogging, gets at these things better. And so I, I mean, I've only indirectly said, I don't really understand the op-ed process, except that we like controversy. You know, we all do, and that's a place where you tend to see that. So they're gonna kind of take a stronger voice on an issue and run with it. One I more, think it's unfortunate. One more question and then singing. <laughs> oh God. I may play I may play a video instead of singing. Yeah. But anyway, one more question. So while I one more? Because the sound went away again. Yes sir. God damn. Thank you very much, Andy. Interesting out. Um, to what extent do you think this is an issue that can and should be addressed rationally? And we have set of deniers who are we supposed to still be engaging with <coughs> deniers, or are we giving up on them? Ah. And with more, so let me put this, I think, better. With whom should we be talking? The D word has finally. Uh, by the way, this is David Weinberger. Read his book. Uh, what's the title? How do you, too big to know. Too big to know. See, he, please, or at least read the Atlantic article that summarizes it. it it's it's if about. The book wouldn't kill you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it would help him. It would help sustain. It would be a sustainability uh, thing. Um, no, the book is about building a smarter room. The internet is smarter than we all are. Wikipedia is smarter than any individual working to contribute to Wikipedia. Um, anyway. Um, I think we should engage. Engagement is, remember this, 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 what I just showed you, what I told you about libertarians and, uh, I'll give you one quick example uh, from another arena, um, wildfire zones in Colorado. There's a fairly libertarian think tank called Headwaters Economics. They came out with a 10 point plan to reduce uh, US vulnerability of wildfire losses in the West. And, and it's all about subsidies. It's a, uh, one of their points was we currently, we, everyone in this room who pays taxes, um, we, we encourage people to build in red zones of Colorado where we know there will be wildfires with or without global warming. And we encourage that because we uh, subsidize second mortgage, uh, mortgages on second houses. So why in the world should there be a, a, a tax deduction, a federal tax deduction for a mortgage on a second house that's being built in a red zone? Tell me that. So that, so that firefighters go in there and have to lose their lives uh, sometimes protecting a house that wouldn't be built unless we were subsidizing it, at least partially. That stuff is libertarian, you know, that's, I can tell you a lot of people I know who hate Al Gore's view of global warming who would embrace that right now. And, and that's why, and, and I actually don't use the word denier, even though there are people who are professional 
deniers, dissemblers, because it just it's a dividing term. It's a term that and, and when you really say deny what? When you ask deny what, then it gets complicated in a hurry. Deny how dangerous global warming is, deny that it's actually happening, deny that greenhouse gases function, that physics works. There's a whole uh, there's a whole spectrum and there's no single simple denier, blah blah. And, and there are people that are professional confusers and professional you know, delayers for sure, but they are they're they take too much of the heat, I think, sometimes. I, I I'll just give you one last example as we of how I think about this. Um, uh, Joe Rahm, who is the science advisor to this uh, year's, year's thing, uh, he and I engaged in a debate on, in our blogs once a few years ago about uh, what if the world had perfect climate information? If there was no deniers and no dissemblers and no confusion, would that magically foster, galvanize global action on greenhouse gases or even U.S. action? And my assertion was no, given what I've learned about human behavior, about a uh, I mean, we've got political paralysis problems, you know, 60 vote thing. And, but um, human nature is, I, I asserted that you could have perfect, if you had perfect information on the climate problem, it will not solve the climate problem. It's not that, it's, it's much, much harder than that. And, and that, I, that's what gets me away from thinking about things that way. But read his book. Great book. Thank you very much. So, song. Yeah, so I guess, you know, I. I can't get the sound of here to work. I'd love to play it on, on here. But I, I, I'll, I could sing it a cappella. I, I should have brought my guitar. I, I didn't bring my guitar. I don't know why. It's, it was working, and then I had to reboot and then stop. So anyway, I'll, all right, I'll just sing. Um, well, I could sing Liberated Carbon, but let me sing. Uh, all right, I'll sing Liberated Carbon. I don't think I've ever sung it a cappella. <laughs> I could pretend. Air guitar. Play air guitar. <laughs> it took a thousand generations for our species to rise. I'll do it like a rap. But gathering and hunting was no way to get by. We yearned to burn more than dung and sticks. Then someone came along and said, hey, try lighting this. We opened up the ground and showed us coal and oil. Said, come liberate some carbon, it'll make your blood boil. Liberated carbon, it'll spin your wheels. Liberated carbon, it'll nuke your meals. Liberated carbon, it'll turn your night to day. Come on and liberate some carbon, babe, it's the American way. Now I got peat swamp fossils running my TV. Boom, 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 BP's black label burns in my SUV. Boom, 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 boom. We can light up the planet like a Christmas tree. It seems that things are getting hot, but hey, we've got AC adaptation. Boom, 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 boom. Liberated carbon, it'll spin your wheels. Liberated carbon, it'll nuke your meals. Liberated carbon, it'll turn your night today. Come on and liberate some carbon, babe. It's the American way. Pump those electrons and that gasoline. No sweat or hurry, just turn on a machine. We send an army to the desert. To keep this country free and to liberate some carbon baby for you and me liberated carbon it'll spin your wheels liberated carbon it'll nuke your meals liberated carbon it'll turn your night today come on and liberate some carbon baby boom 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 liberate some carbon baby boom boom 
Liberate some carbon, babe. It's the American way. Ba 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 ba. All right. <laughs>